This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Mark Oppenheimer, who is again joining me to talk about cartoons. Mark? <laughs> hey, thanks for having me on. Um, you're an advocate, and you're not talking about cartoons. There's something wrong here. Yeah, well, I suppose <laughs> I'm, I'm really interested in free speech, and I, I really love graphic novels. Um, and cartoons are under fire. Um, we've seen some of our, you know, the most beloved uh, cartoons, I think, of our childhood being being challenged in the form of Dr. Seuss's books. Let's just quickly talk about your credentials. Um, you, I mean, I mean, you and I are friends, okay? So I know your credentials. But for those who don't know your credentials, uh, one of your strengths is um, expression and speech, legally speaking. Yeah, so it's a large part of the work that I do. Um, so I've been involved in um, a fair amount of litigation around the constitutional right to free speech and the limits on that speech. So working out, you know, what is genuine hate speech, which is not protected by our constitution, and uh, what is genuine free speech, and trying to sort that line out, which I think is a complicated thing in the public mind. Um, one of the cases that that I'm involved in is um, for John Quilani. So John Quilani wrote an article in 2008 um, and was initially sanctioned um, by the Equality Court on the grounds that the article constituted hate speech. I then acted for him in the appeal um, and the Supreme Court of Appeal found that the hate speech legislation was itself unconstitutional. And we then argued last year in September before the Constitutional Court and we're awaiting judgment in that manner to find out you know, what the, mm. what the test will be for hate speech. Before we talk about cartoons, um, and that's going to be the fun part of our conversation, Mark, what is hate speech? Well, as I say, we're sort of in this interesting time where we have we have a constitutional test, which I think is the test that we should always bear in mind. And the way the Constitution talks about it is that it's the advocacy of hatred on one of four grounds, race, gender, ethnicity, and religion, and that constitutes an incitement to cause harm. The Supreme Court of Appeal has suggested that you should add in the category of sexual orientation on the grounds that um, gay people have suffered a similar history of persecution to those other groups. We know that gay people have been beheaded in South Africa, for example. It was illegal um, to have gay sex up until you know, the early 90s, and gay marriage um, is quite a recent thing. So there's, there's good arguments for saying you know, this is a group that is deserving of additional protections. But that incitement to cause harm is important. So it's not that the words said about those groups are merely offensive, it's that they call on people to go and perform a harm against the group. So, you know, if you say, for example, uh, Jews are disgusting and we should eradicate them from the earth, you have the advocacy of hatred on the one hand and the call to action on the other. And so that's that sort of narrow category of hate speech. In popular parlance, we often talk about it in this other way, which is anything that people find offensive. Um, so, the use of racial slurs, for example, is often referred to as hate speech, um, when really it's that's very different from what our constitution talks about. You know, calling someone uh, by a racial epithet is not the same as calling for those people to be harmed by another powerful group. Listen, um, that hair of yours, I think, is hate speech. <laughs> yeah, so one of the things that I'm fighting for is really protection on the grounds of fashion sense. I just feel like people like me have been discriminated against for, for too long. You know? And we really are just so fabulous. You know? <laughs> uh, what was it? Um, it was the EFF that uh, wanted uh, 
your hair product to be banned. Am I right? What is it? I can't remember now. Yes, uh, Tresemme. You know, uh, Tresemme, the former humanity shampoo. <laughs> listen, so, um, yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, listen, I, I've had you staying at my house and uh, your 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 bathroom habits are, are a lot lengthier than mine. <laughs> and I think it's all that hair. <laughs> you're, still, you're still wiping the hair out of your pillows like a year and a half later. <laughs> um, but you, you once upon a time said that there's a difference, Mark, uh, between hate speech and hateful speech. And I think that's kind of important. Yes, exactly. So I think there are a whole bunch of things that are hateful. You know, mm. um, in other words, if you call me a kike, kike is a sort of anti-Semitic slur, right? I think that's hateful speech, um, and that's there's certain kinds of speech you might think are impolite. You know, that are that are rude, that are offensive, that are hateful. That's not the same as genuine hate speech. As I say, this mm. call to action stuff is really, you know. A vital requirement and we find that not just in South Africa but in international law instruments as well um, but one of the things that you've got to think about as well is how you want to regulate speech um, and you might for example think that the state coming down on people mm. is one of those very strong arm things and you want to reserve it for those genuine acts of hate speech whereas hateful speech you might want to regulate differently socially so for example you know if you're your friends are sort of sl throwing around, you know, racial slurs. Uh, you might say, look, you know, I prefer if you don't do that. You could have a very soft approach to say, like, you know, I think what you're doing is quite offensive. That's one way to change the behavior. Or you could just have a conversation and say, why do you like to use that word? What's it about? You know, um, even softer approach. And you might find that as a, a social approbation towards hateful speech is sufficient. Now, what we're finding at the moment actually is that social approbation has been really ramped up. So it's not that you engage in a conversation with someone who you disagree with. We say you shouldn't ever be allowed to work again. We should mm. shame you publicly on social media. You should never be allowed to reemerge from society. And so that's something to be worried about as well. And I think we should talk a little bit about the difference between the right to free speech and the culture of free speech. I, I'm very conflicted, uh, Mark. Um, I mean, you know, I've spoken about this in the past and it, it the idea of free speech is something that that confuses me immensely. Um, I, on the one hand, I've often been this um, sort of uh, hero of free speech, I suppose, or fighting or a fighter for free speech. And on the other hand, I'm also not. Um, I don't think that it's it's reasonable to shout about bomb threats when you're 35,000 feet in the sky in an aeroplane because you're going to cause mass havoc and I think that the airline has has a right to trump its private property rights over your free speech yeah so I think I think you, when you're thinking about rights generally you know you want to work out you know, what is the content of the rights mm. and what are the limitations and what happens when rights conflict. And I think it's useful to talk about that private property rights and a free speech right. So, for example, in your house, you might have certain rules about the way that you want people to speak. So you might say, for example, look, this is a no blasphemy zone. So yeah. if you're going to take the Lord's name in vain, well, you're no longer welcome in my house. Doesn't mean that you're not free to, to, have that, to have that belief or to express that view outside of my house. Go right ahead. Mm. But in my house, that's the rule. And so you kind of have some kind of contractual agreement, agreement with, your, with your guests, and you're saying this is my private property zone. 
Um, so, but that's different from, as we say, like free speech governed by the state, you know. So you can imagine, for example, the state telling newspapers what they're allowed to publish. Um, that's that's quite a big difference from, a, let's say, a newspaper editor saying to, you know, people that write in columns what they're allowed to, you know, what, they, what, what they're willing to publish. A newspaper doesn't have an obligation to publish your letter to them. Um, but because that's their paper. You know, but isn't it a slippery slope, paper. Mark? It's a sli- it sounds like a slippery slope. In, in what sense? Well, I mean, if the state starts implementing or imposing what you can and can't publish, I mean, what is it based on? It's not measurable. Yeah, well, I, I think you can draw this, this bright line uh, with regards to incitement, you know. So, in other words, mm-hmm. if, if the state has a rule which says, you know, you're, you, you cannot call on people to be killed, you know, um, on the grounds of one of those protected categories. Um, so, one of the sort of classical tests is incitement of imminent violence. In other words, mm-hmm. in this moment, um, violence will erupt, you know. And that's different from, let's say, you write a book. Um, I mean, so we might think, for example, someone says, you know, at the Capitol Hill riots, like, mm. we need to go and find Nancy Pelosi, and we need to we need to gut her, you know, and you've got this mob of people, and they're sort of rampaging through the building. You think there's yeah. likely that they are going to go and find Nancy Pelosi and gut And that's her. quite immediate. Pretty, yeah, it's pretty immediate. That's pretty different from, you know, writing a, a book, you know, where you say, we should go and overthrow the government, you know, and these, these uh, politicians are a bunch of pigs, and... You know, we should uh, put them on a spit roast kind of thing. It's you don't have that immediacy problem. It's unlikely that people are going to be coordinated, you know, to go and act. But Mark, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. But then, what about just playing with words? So Julius Malema, for example, I think it was in 2012, 2012 I think it was. We, uh, he lost a court case uh, where he was told that they cannot sing, kill the boor. And he changed the lyrics to "kiss the boor." Now everybody knows everybody knows what what they're doing, but he simply changed the wording. Yeah, so it's interesting thing to raise. I think one way of thinking about these is it's not just the words, right? Mm. What we're trying to work out is what meaning is conveyed by what you've said. So Julius Malema didn't just say "kiss the boor." He he just replaced that one line in the song. Mm. So the rest of it is he says. You know, um, uh, shoot to kill, kiss the boer, and then he mimes shooting. You know, it goes pow pow. Mm. So in the full context, we know exactly what he's saying. You know, mm. and it's sort of implications. Kiss means kiss with a bullet. Um, so I think coded language doesn't get you out of the problem. Um, you know, if I say kill the Jews and I spell it with an O O, you know, it's still obvious what you're doing. Um, and so I don't. I think it's fine to regulate that kind of speech. Um, so. But you do raise another important point, which is that you can have this treadmill effect. Mm. So you you ban a symbol. So, for example, the old South African flag um, was yeah. banned by the by the Equality Court. Um, and so, what you suddenly had basically a flag that no one waved, you know, um, that no one had interest in, most people kind of disdained, um, suddenly becomes massively popular because of the banning. And so you have people changing their avatars to it, mm. and then they would do things like adjust it, and take out the well, little bits. Is the one from 1928? Mm. It's this color scheme. It's this, you know, insert in the middle. So we'll just change one of the colors, or we'll change the insert to something else, or we'll just post things that have that color scheme. You know, um, sunsets, cakes. Um, yeah. There's a 
the, the New York um, flag is that color scheme as well. Um, people had Nike shoes with that. And so you, you're going to wind up with this, this way of flouting the law. I mean, the, the other ones are things like um, Heil Hitler, very mm. obvious sort of like anti-Semitic gesture. So then you had HH as a code for it. And then that became 88 because you know, H is the eighth letter of the alphabet. And so you wind up in the situation where you constantly have to chase the code. Um, you know, what is the thing you're going to ban? And then what you have is people pranking you. So this symbol mm. briefly was as a white supremacist symbol. And it's you know, the, the uh, emoji. Yeah, yeah. So there's the AOK emoji. It's supposed to be kind of like white power, the W from the from the fingers and the P. Um, and this was sort of basically started on 4chan as a way of like mm. kind of seeing how much how much could be done with this and then there were pictures of various politicians doing the AOK sign they were accused of white supremacy you know um so yeah you 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 want to be very wary of actually giving enormous power to these symbols um and really what you you gotta ask why are we trying to regulate speech in the first place right it's not the speech that's the problem it's the things that could happen because of it it's the dangerous ideas and so your first port of call really should be about combating the ideas with more speech you know, yeah. so you really want to say, hey, you know, white supremacy is a pretty bad idea. You know, like it's not met out by the science. Mm. You know, here's some contrary ways of thinking about this. But that sciencing approach can wind up driving those guys underground, you know, to the point where they go and act out violently. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of thing you want to stop. Yeah. I mean, I mean, exactly, Mark. But I mean, you and I could start talking about wiping out cockroaches. Now, if we happen to be in a different country, let's say, I don't know, Rwanda. There could be a very different implication to that code. Yeah, so I think I think context matters quite a lot. Um, so we have a friend. I'm not going to say who he is, um, but he made a comment about a politician being a cockroach, mm. and it was drawn to his attention. You know, what about Rwanda and the cockroaches? He had no idea, no idea about the implication. And once the implication was put to him, he said, "Oh, well, then I withdraw the statement. That's not what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you know, I just meant this guy is a, is a filthy." bad you know guy you know yeah you could say I, locust yeah exactly you know you just want to say it's a pest you know sort of so metaphorical language you know is complicated um mm. and sometimes has a much greater resonance for some people than others so the speaker might be unaware of how offensive the thing is they just don't know what the code means they mean something totally different and i think when we're assessing hate speech laws as well you want to try and hold someone liable by finding them or imprisoning them yeah like their internal mental states matter quite a lot you know um you know, we think that when you just when you kill a human being, what's going on in your head matters. You know, were you killing them in self-defense? Were you plotting yeah. to kill them? You know, were you drunk out of your mind? All that stuff makes a big difference. Something else, Mark, that makes a big difference, and how's this for a great segue? But something that makes a, a big difference also is not just the context of the subject matter, but the context of the era. So recently, as we, we, we all know that Dr. Seuss was, uh, a few of his books were, okay, so let's just get this right because I've seen some, some dialogue on the internet. They weren't banned, but the publisher essentially self-censored, and we'll get into that in a second. As a result, my wife knows exactly how I tick, so she got me a collection <laughs> of Dr. Seuss books. Um, Mark, let's, let's talk about this. The context of the era. So, I mean, you know, he did his books decades ago, and now people are suddenly starting to judge him by today's sort of moral standards. 
Yeah, so I think you're right. Trying to work out what the work means and the context in which they were drawn is pretty important for, for like understanding the text. Mm. So if we think about, there's six books that got banned. Mm. Um, one of them is his first children's book. Um, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, Let's just deal with that banned part because I've seen lots of conflict over that terminology. What happened? Yeah. Let's let's unpack that. So, let's just have a fun, sort of raw account of what occurs, and then I'll explain why I think the word banning is justifiable. So, Dr. Seuss dies in 1991. There's the Dr. Seuss Foundation, which has the copyright to the books. Okay, and um, on his birthday, which is also the National Reading Day in America, uh, they say we will no longer be publishing the following six books on the grounds that they have. Uh, racists and um, stereotypical imagery okay and they withdraw those books from publication the effect of that is that you then can't buy it on on Amazon which is the biggest um, bookseller in the world um, and then what you have is not just the publisher removing it you have eBay stopping private individuals from selling those books on their marketplace now eBay being the biggest second-hand dealer in the world okay so that strikes me as when you think about a banning there's two ways of thinking about it the one is let's say state-backed banning so the government introduces a law which says that if you possess this item um, there will be a penalty so South Africa for example we banned a whole bunch of items if you had ANC regalia um, you could be imprisoned for it or fined for it okay? if you had certain books you know there was a sanction for it so Black Beauty is one of those books that was banned um, now that's done by the state so you pass a law and then there's de facto banning, which is in fact, you make it impossible to access the object. Now, that's become much harder because of the internet. So, you know, things are generally available. You know, you could, you could have bought digital copies of all these books on Amazon, you know, um, yeah. up until the 1st of March. I think the, the sort of the removing happens on the 2nd or 3rd of March. Um, it's now become actually very practically hard to get those books. Um, and so, and it's backed by not, not the state, but by two of the biggest tech companies in the world. Yeah, um, I mean, that's pretty large. That's pretty large. Mm. So to my mind to just say, oh, nothing to see here. It's just capitalism in action. It's just private players in the market making free choices is to kind of miss the point, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think we've got to be quite wary of this view that it's, it's not a banning. Uh, I think it very much is. And I think people are sort of hung up on a very particular type of banning, which is that done by the state. Um, so to give you a further context to this, the American Library Association has an annual event called Banned Books Week, okay? And they show you a list of the books that are most frequently challenged um, that are that are held in libraries. Yeah. Okay, and not, those books are not banned by the state. They're not, it's not illegal to have them in a library, but what you have is various associations um, getting in touch with the librarians and saying, don't stock this book. Now, a lot of the stuff that's traditionally been targeted is stuff that, let's say, it's aimed at children um, and people don't like the message. So a lot of it has gay characters in it, for example. The Harry Potter books were targeted on the grounds that they have witchcraft you know, in them. Um, so you kind of, it used to be the case that conservatives were those that were calling for books to be banned, social conservatives, people saying, I don't, think about the children. I don't want them to look at this material. It, it goes against my moral values. Yeah. And now what we're seeing is this sort of move to say, the moral value that I want to protect is something in relation to, um, let's say racism. You know? um, so we think that this book has got a racist stereotype and it should be banned. It also must be borne in mind that Dr. Seuss Foundation didn't just do this out of the blue. 
um, a librarian in 2017 uh, refused to do Dr. Seuss stuff um, during National Reading Week on the grounds that all the Dr. Seuss content was tinged with racism. Um, so you had this kind of mounting pressure. There's a Dr. Seuss museum. Mm. There were calls for certain exhibits to be taken down. Um, we should also talk about, yeah, so this is an earlier Dr. Seuss that you put well, Let up. me see if I can pull it up. There we go. Yeah. Okay, so, so for those for those who are listening and can't see, Mark, what's happening here? Okay, so this is a it's it's an ad that 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 he did. So before he sort of produced the children's books, he did some advertising for this thing called Flit, uh, which was this sort of like um, insect repellent. And so there's a series of these with the guys in safari suits in the jungle, you know, squashing these mosquitoes. Right mm. now. The other ones that I think are worth talking about are the, the cartoons that he did um, in the 40s. Um, before America joined the Second World War, he did a series of cartoons um, criticizing the America First movement um, and encouraging basically America to kind of grow a pair and you know, stop the, yeah. you know, the rights that are happening in Europe. Um, but that cartoon that you put up, so I think we've got to ask ourselves when we see, I think there's something jarring about the imagery, you know, um, but you've got to ask what is the if you have a racial depiction does it necessarily become a racist depiction is it derogatory mm. are you are you making fun of the person are you are you or or is it just a sort of stereotypical thing it's the other thing as well is this type of trope the very dark mm. uh, features sort of you know broad lips you had a, a a style of drawing at the time so if you look at those little black sambo and things done by Disney and Warner Brothers, there's quite a lot of stuff from that era that looks like that. You had minstrel shows. Um, it has a different ring to a modern eye. Yeah. I think it does make us uncomfortable. Interesting enough, that's not a piece that's been banned, right? You know? um, <laughs> um, uh, you're speaking of the racial Dr. Seuss, this is now from one of his books. Yes. Um, now, what's interesting is that neither of those images is the original image. Um, so the one on the right, in other words, with the yellow skin and the single ponytail, mm. um, the image that you have in the book from 1937, um, it, it was accompanied by the text, uh, a Chinaman, uh, which was then changed to a Chinese man. I see yours says Chinese boy. Mm. Um, Chinaman was sort of seen then later as a derogatory term. Um, now, so Zeus, on his own accord, sort of updated the image, you know, um, and there's a question about that. In other words, if an author is making a choice of themselves about mm. their work. Um, but there are historical things that matter. So 1937 is before the Maoist revolution. And that ponytail um, was a very common thing worn by Chinese men uh, yes. before then. Um, you know, in other words, you also have a time, you know, 1937, you don't have world travel. You know, um, you had the idea of like exotic figures. Yeah. It's, it's, there would have been something quite progressive about this at the time. It would have been, oh, you know, you've got this Chinese person who's included in your book. You know, that's someone from afar. There's, and this also doesn't strike me. There's anything particularly derogatory about the depiction. In other words, it was also uh, it was also an illustration of the time. Okay, I mean, you and I spoke about this briefly before we went live. But Tintin and Asterix had very much the same depictions of black people at the time. Yes, sure. Yeah. So you mean you know those Tintin books start i think it's in the sort of 20s um you know and uh tintin in the congo is the mm. probably the most controversial tintin um 
What's interesting about Tintin in the Congo is that for a long time it was publicly unavailable. Um, it became available for sale in South Africa, I think, widely, maybe 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, but has always done very well in the Congo. Um, <laughs> and you know, people in the Congo have, haven't felt offended by it. They've said, oh, wow, our country got included in the, you know, this famous character of Tintin. Um, so, yeah, so there you have that kind of, you know, Gollywog style figure. I mean, also, if you think about Noddy, you have the Gollywog character. Um, you know, the, and these things, are, I think, again, to modern eyes, we find them um, hard to deal with. Um, some of it as well, when we think about the taboos, some things have become a taboo, but we've forgotten why. Mm. So blackface, for example, is basically totally and utterly forbidden in America. You know, and so you have these scandals where there'll be someone uh, like Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of yeah. Canada, um, who dressed up like a genie, I think, um, and wore dark makeup. Okay. <laughs> And so, and he did this when he was either in high school or early university. And so now people look and they go, Justin Trudeau is a massive racist, you know, he was in blackface. Um, <laughs> there's a Louis C.K. episode um, where yes. his his daughter uh, dresses up like a, I think it's, it's a famous black scientist. Um, and no, it's not, it's Frederick Douglass. She dresses up like Fred, Frederick Douglass because she said, you know, Frederick Douglass had this noble story. And you know, that episode came out like 10 years ago. Mm. Um, and very little kind of controversy about it at the time. Um, so these things kind of ebb and flow. Um, Spike Lee made a movie uh, about about minstrel acts. Um, you know, I see this cartoon that you put up is from Asterix. Um, so one of the things we've got to ask, so one of the responses to the, the sort of Dr. Seuss banning mm. was people saying, what's the big deal? It's only these six books, you know, mm. it's not a problem. There's all these other Dr. Seuss books. You know, as a lawyer, I think in terms of precedence. So I think, what's yeah. the principle you're relying upon to, you know, basically remove this literature from from history? Um, and then, could that principle be applied to other things? And the principle is something like this: is there is a racial depiction yeah. uh, of of someone in this book, and and that could cause offence, and so it should be removed. So what's interesting about the six books? Um, so we've got the, the Chinese man case, the Mulberry case. Um, there's another one I th in, um, I think it's called If I Ran the Zoo. Um, and the, the idea is you've got this little boy who goes to a zoo and there's all the ordinary, all ordinary animals and he sort of imagines what he would put in the zoo. And so he, you know, it's him traveling around the world. Often, in, you know, zoos has these invented locations and invented, uh, you know, uh, creatures. Um, and they're all fantastical and amazing and he's sort of their rhyme and whatnot. And one of them is on uh, an island in the Pacific and there's this very long-necked bird um, with mm. this kind of tuft of hair on top and the bird is being carried by four of the islanders who also have the same hair. Okay. Um, and they're drawn in a similar manner to let's say that king that you have at the beginning. And so that's one of the ones that people have now decided is offensive. Um, but a lot of the others, I think from South African eyes, we'd look at it and we wouldn't know what it was. Um, so three of the books have to do with references to Eskimos. So McGilligot's Pool, um, which is about this kid who's fishing in this little, like, small pool of water, and this, like, farmer comes up and says, you're wasting your time. Um, there's nothing to catch in there. He starts imagining all the all the sort of fish that could be attached to, like, a giant tributary. Um, ah, that's interesting. So I take that head doesn't actually spin around the original book. It goes all the way to the top, but it gives you a sense of what the head looked like. Um, 
and you see the resemblance is really meant to be between the hairstyle. There, there is actually, by the way, an African tribe that have that, that haircut, um, or they they groom their hair in that way and they mm. dye it with red ochre. Um, so McGillicott's pool, one of the fish he imagines is an Eskimo fish, um, and so there's a um, a it's sort of wearing the clothes of an Eskimo, and he calls it an Eskimo fish. Mm. And we don't do anything of that. I mean, we have like you know Eskimo pies, you know, sort of dessert, mm. you know. Um, but in Canada, um, the feeling has been that the term Eskimo is um, the wrong term because people describe themselves as Inuits. Yeah. Okay. Now, Inuits are an Eskimo tribe. Okay. So they prefer to be called directly as Inuits. But Eskimo is actually a much broader term. It's like if you think about the term African, you know, um, you might want to say, well, I'm a Zulu. You know, I prefer if you called me a Zulu instead of just the generic term African. You know, I'm Somali. You know, um, mm. so. You have polar peoples that live, you know, various parts, you know, in Russia, you know, in Greenland, um, and that term Eskimo doesn't have anything inherently derogatory about it, but it's now become seen as, well, you shouldn't call Inuits Eskimo, so you shouldn't ever utter the word Eskimo. So anything that is Eskimo-related is now offensive. It's to miss the point. It's, yeah. it's also to think about words and images as blasphemies. So, you know, if you've ever watched, um, I think it's Life of Brian, the Monty Python film. There's, yeah, a, great. there's a scene where this guy's being stoned for, for blaspheming, you know, and he says, I don't understand that all I said to my wife was this meal is, you know, fit enough for Jehovah. And they say, there he said, he said Jehovah, we must stone it. <laughs> and so people are throwing stones and there's all these voracious people in the crowd uh, who are mainly uh, women dressed up as men, you know, who enjoy the going of the stone. And the high priest, who's John Cleese, says, you know, we now condemn you for saying Jehovah. And suddenly everyone starts throwing the stones at him because he said Jehovah. And, and this is the situation we're in, is that we've devoid all context, all intent. We just go, you said the bad word, or you drew the bad image, um, and therefore you must be stoned and you must be cancelled. You know, I mean, it'd be one thing, for example, if the little boy in McGillagoth Pond said, you know, those Eskimos um, are untermenschen who should be exterminated, mm. and, you know, I'm going to fish all of them out of existence. Like, we might think, hey, whoa, there's a problem with this, you know. Um, but that's not what you have. You know, you have this sort of delight of these other worlds, these other planes. You know, what I was getting at earlier was, you know, when you can't travel and, you know, these books come out in the 30s and the 40s, like, how do you access other cultures? You know, it's through literature, it's through, you know, through books. It's sort of exposing people to this wide array of different things. Why do you think, though, Mark, that people want books banned? I think there's a couple of reasons. So, you know, if you think about the image that should be in everyone's minds whenever they think of book burning, is back book banning is book burning. Think about I think about the Nazis in the 30s taking books that they described as is immoral books written by Jews or you know covering ideas they didn't like, putting them in a pile and burning them. Mm. You know, and and some of it is that you you know the classic line is a society that burns books will eventually burn people and the nazis did that mm. you know that you want to eradicate certain things from history you want to eradicate certain ideas from society you want to uh target people you know who are behind those ideas mm. and there's something dangerous about that you know you had it during apartheid where you say if only we can just control all the words if we can just ban these symbols and these books and these songs then everything will be fine and we can stop these you know communist terrorists it doesn't work you know it's it's a very bad way of trying to control society you know eventually what you do is you think about like a pot that's steaming and you try and hold the thing down 
you don't have a steam valve for these ideas, it's going to mm. explode. Um, so I think it comes out of some place of, of control. I think some people think they're doing a good thing. Um, they think that they're protecting. Yeah. And you might think, for example, we're quite bad at switching ideologies from different contexts. So for example, I think communism in the family makes total sense to me. I get it. You're like, it would be weird to charge your kids rent. You know, you're like, listen, my stuff is your stuff. You get to live here. You know, like mm -hmm. this is all ours. Communism at the state level is an absolute disaster. It just leads to misery, suffering and death. You know, and so what people sometimes do is they go, well, I wouldn't want my child to read this book because I don't think it's appropriate for them. So therefore, no child should ever be allowed to read it. And no adult should be allowed to read it either because some child might stumble upon it. You know, that's that kind of mm. thinking. People just sort of extrapolate from their own personal experience. So, I mean, cartoons, right, that have been banned. Let me pull up a few here, all right? Um, Scooby-Doo. So, we spoke about this briefly earlier, but let's quickly go to it. So, Scooby-Doo has, well, various episodes of Scooby-Doo have been banned in China. Uh, the, their reasoning is that they wanted local content to be promoted. Uh, that's a very strange reason to ban a cartoon, though. I mean, it just shows that the quality of your cartoon is less interesting. It's it's less exciting, because if kids are going to watch Scooby-Doo, then it means that you need to work harder. Yeah, I mean, I mean, China's a good example of a sort of state-led society, you know, where you have this enormous control. And you, as you say, the first thing you should ask is, you can't compete with the cartoon from the 60s. That's how bad your local content is. Mm. Like, maybe you should be trying to up your game, you know, instead of suppressing this old material. Um, we tried this in South Africa. So when Claudi Motsaneng was running the SABC, he said, we need to help, you know, local music. So let's ban 90% of international music. So we'll have a quota where you can only play 90% local music. Um, and so you had a, a radio station called Lotus FM. There's a lot of um, South Africans who are of Indian descent, and they like Lotus FM because it's Indian music. It's culturally important to them. And so they said, well, you know, uh, hey guys, we don't play South African music. We play Indian music. And Fadi said, tough. You know, so you wind up, you know, suppressing something. I, I, I had lunch with, uh, the, with the band Vonneboom a while ago. And I said, to, and I brought up this sort of local thing. I said, how did it affect you guys? And they said, it was terrible. They said, um, you know, the way that you get money as an artist is you get a split of ad revenue, you know, based on how many times your song is played. But if no one wants to advertise on the station because no one's listening to it because all the music sucks, it doesn't help anybody. Mm. So what you really want is, you know, a variety of ideas to flourish. You know, banning some so that others can strive is a very bad idea. You want to create a competitive marketplace where people can sort of go, hey, there's all these varieties out there, you know. But I mean, check this out. Tom and Jerry, a whole bunch of Tom and Jerry episodes. <clears throat> excuse me, were, were banned, uh, particularly in the UK, because they had scenes of smoking, alcohol drinking, and of course, um, unnecessary violence. <laughs> yeah, violence against poor, poor animals as well. You know? uh, I mean, this is the sort of, this, this is the classic conservative line, right? Yeah. Whereas, you know, we can't have violent video games and, you know, sexy movies because people are basically automatons. You know, they're yeah. just like these mindless robots who are going to watch this thing and they're going to act. And the data doesn't bear it out. You know, people yeah. can go into an imaginative state. They can watch, you know, the little animated mouse <clears throat> drinking out of the triple X bottle. That's supposed yeah. to be whiskey. You know, and then like hammering the cat. 
and they're not going to go out and you know become drunks and start abusing animals. Yeah, I mean, they they know that it's not reality. You know, you can play you can play a game like Grand Theft Auto. You know, where you can go and you know murder a prostitute and burn her corpse. Yes, in a game. In a game. And not do it in reality. I'd be hell of a surprised if any of those GTA guys are going out and performing those actions. Yeah. Okay, but now this is a step too far. This rape apologist skunk should be banned. Pepe Le Pew. Pepe. Pepe. <clears throat> Hold on. We've got to. We've got to show some respect. It's uh, Le Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> <laughs> um, he has been removed yeah. or or left out of a new uh, what Warner Brothers cartoon. I can't remember what Space what the. Jam yeah. Because so he's Jam a. Yeah. So what's going on? What's going on, Mark? What's going on? Yeah, I mean, you have the, the rapist skunk, you know, chasing around the, you know, the poor little putty cat. Um, I mean, this is the sort of trope with Peppy, right? Like, every cartoon is basically, he's this amorous character, and he smells because he's a skunk, and he's chasing this, this cat, and she always is sort of bending him off. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's a cartoon, right? Like, do we really <laughs> think that any kid has sort of been, like, inspired by a skunk? Go and, I don't know, their, their house cat, you know, because uh. of Peppy. I doubt it. Um, also, again, you might not like the attitude. You might think, hey, maybe this thing does have some sort of improper moral message. Maybe it sort of doesn't um, respect the boundaries of people. Mm. It's a great opportunity for kind of dialogue. You know, point out like, uh, hey, that kind of behavior is not all right. Or like, these are the kind of things you might want to think about. But like, you know, driving it away from reality is not going to help. You know what's interesting, Mark? Um, <clears throat> when I was growing up, and I, I mean, I remember the, the satanic panic of the 80s. Mm. Uh, and our parents got very nervous about music and certain TV programs and that kind of thing. Um, I think you might remember it also. Um, and uh, cartoons like Pepe Le Pew and uh, The Roadrunner in which the coyote would fall off the cliff. I mean, that's pretty violent with a piano and, or a 100 kilo anvil falling on his head. You know, um, and his teeth getting broken out, or Daffy Duck with his beak being broken off. I mean, that stuff was violent, but yet, yes, yes, what was weird. It was hilarious. My parents didn't mind me watching it. What my parents did have issues with was the more psychological uh, cartoons, perhaps like He Man um, or Thundercats. Uh, the stuff that would probably. Um, it'll probably bypass this particular kind of conversation. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out why. Uh, is it because there's a visual element that seems to dominate this narrative? I think what you have is that certain kinds of moral fads come in and out. So, yeah, I mean, I think at some point, um, He-Man was like banned when I was a kid because you know, he was the master of the universe and you know mm. the real master of the universe jesus yes so you know this guy's a usurper um ninja turtles um ninjas are some kind of religious cult so mm. you know that's a problem um now i think what you'd find with the current work brigade is that they've got no problem with like you know if you want to have a pentagram or you want to be a witch you know or if you want to denounce christianity that's all fine like no problems you know but if you cross some other lines so for example you know think about one of the 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 funniest daffy duck sequences is him dressing up uh, like a woman? Yes, and he's got this ball of fruit on his head, right? Okay, that's was that one of the greatest. Yeah, because now you've got a sort of transvestite act. Yeah, you know, uh, 
and you're you're making fun of people that are that are transgendered. So that's not okay. Or maybe you have a problem because there's a transcultural thing. So I'd refer to a, a real woman who I think is South American. Uh, but he's a duck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. You know? uh, so I, just, I think these taboos just change. I think they come mm. from the same impulse, which is you know not in my house. Yes. I mean these cartoons are interesting, right? So you kind of have like Bugs Bunny fighting the Nazis, right? You had Warner Brothers produced a bunch of you know anti-Nazi work, um, and yeah, I mean you've got Bugs Bunny kind of imitating Hitler. There's there's the other ones are um, there's a cartoon called. Bugs Bunny um, versus the Nips. Mm. Um, so, uh, in Nepo, Nepo, Neponese is the term that the Japanese refer to themselves as. Yeah. And so the term Nips um, is sort of uh, a slur for the Japanese. And so you had that cartoon is Bugs Bunny washes up on this this island in Japan and he you know chases around this Japanese soldier who's very stereotypically Japanese, got the big teeth and the sort of big you know eyes and the sort of stuff. Um, and you know there's a reason for it. It was you know, 1941, and you know the Japanese had just bombed Pearl Harbor, and it was propaganda, yeah, 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 exactly. So you, you know, and again, some of the things that Dr. Seuss does um, is produce this 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 kind of propaganda around um, saying you've got people being. This one of my favorite cartoons, uh, and it came up recently because Trump used this line "America first," and so the cartoon resurfaced. And basically, you have this um, this woman with an "America first" sort of shirt. It was a it was a a movement um, championed by Charles Lindbergh at the time, mm. um, and she's reading to her two kids, and she says, um, "The big bad wolf devoured the three children, mm. but nothing to worry about because they were other people's children from other nations. You know, everyone can go back to sleep." And you know, the point was to say, "This is what you have going on in Europe. You've got people being, you know, massacred, and America sitting by and doing nothing and saying America first." And so, Doctor Zeus plays this role in terms of saying America should really grow up here and join the war. And eventually, if you do nothing, the Nazis are going to come and they're going to get you. You know, um, so you know you, you you've got to be worried about that. And some of what he did as well was talk about um, Japan. One of the things that the Americans did do, and is sort of now viewed as an atrocity, is that they created internment camps for um, for Japanese Americans. So people yeah. who been who were American citizens, they locked them up for like three years. Um, mm. So um, uh, it's George. Uh, I want to say Tokai um, from from Star Trek um, was um, you know famous famous Japanese actor. Um, uh, I think he plays Sulu on the show. Uh, was when he was a kid, he was in an internment camp. You know, um, and what's interesting about this when we think about which groups kind of you know get special treatment in America, it's certainly not the Japanese. I mean, if you're uh, an Asian American, it's much harder to get into Harvard uh, than it is if you're a white American. Yeah. Um, you know, you actually have ongoing uh, racial attacks against um, people of Asian extraction in America, but very little is sort of said about this. It's interesting that this Dr. Seuss cartoon, you have an Asian character, but it's quite rare for someone to complain about it. But, okay, so, but Mark, um, I guess the elephant in the room is why? What is the end goal? Is Is the end goal to try and create some sort of utopian... Um, <clears throat> excuse me, some sort of utopian meta library of cartoons, books that exist that doesn't offend anybody at any point in time, um, or is this some sort of ongoing um, attack on 
current versus historical perspective, which in which case to me it would appear that it would just be endless. Yes, I think I think you do have people who have this kind of utopian view. So they they can imagine a world where no one is offended and they think that's the world we should strive for. I was at a hate speech conference the other day and one of the 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 questions we were talking about was how should reporters deal with racial slurs? Mm. So, for example, you have a politician who utters a racial slur. Um, how should they report on it in their articles? Should they use the words used by the politician? You know, or should they just say, this person said something racist? Okay? And a lot of people in the room, uh, this, was, uh, this conference was run out of Germany, most people were Europeans, said you shouldn't use the word because then you re-offend. You know? um, and I said, but hold on, there's a worry here. Like, I want to know what this person said so that I can actually make my own independent judgment of it. I'm at a point now where I just don't trust journalists to get it right. I'll give you a good example. So there was a politician who described one of his opponent's policies as niggardly, okay, and was then accused of having uttered a racial slur. The term niggardly means stingy. There's no racial connotation whatsoever. Um, so you can easily have that sort of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, now. I saw a recent thing. There's an American journalist who was described as having produced a series of tweets that were anti-Asian and homophobic. And then I read through the tweets. It took a while. You had to go and find them externally, look at the stuff. And I thought, I just can't imagine what's homophobic about these things. You talked about she'd been out drinking and she woke up with Asian eyes or something. You know. Um, so, yeah, you've got something that you might think of as racist. But you want to be able to confront it. And one of the things that was said mm. by a person who was said if we can just stop all the racial slurs if we can just remove them from a vocabulary then everything will be fine it's not going to work no it won't work like taking away the words uh first of all it's not possible because people Mm. still have private spaces but the idea is the thing you're worried about it's not the term you know the term is really neither here nor there you know there's certain terms that are have a neutral you know take and then they become later offensive because of how they're used language is quite fluid you know um some words are offensive in one country and not in another. Yeah. And it also seems like it's a very strange battle that that's being fought. I mean, the moment there's uh, a meteorite or a tsunami, then suddenly, you know, the words that, that, that you find offensive no longer matter. So one of, the, one of the things I have to say I was sorely wrong about was when COVID happened, I thought all this work stuff's just going to die. No one's going to care anymore. You've got, you've got a real problem here. You know, you've got this like outbreak of a disease, and boy, did I get it wrong because workness just metastasized into like its own mutant strain. Um, you know, it suddenly became like the burning issue. You know, mass protests. Um, the real pandemic is racism. This sort of stuff. So yeah, I mean, it's 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 virulent things. Um, and I think look, there is some sense in which you have. You know, Hayek talks about, you know, organic order, you know, that things aren't directed from above. Um, You know, it's not planned. There's no conspiracy. Things just emerge. Um, And there are other things which it's like it's clearly part of some game plan. You know, so um, if you, you know, you find in election years in America, these sorts of issues pop up. And the movements that are behind them are funded movements. So Mm. there is some coordination. James Lindsay um, argues very strongly that uh, all the sort of postmodernist woke um, uh, stuff, in other words, for those who don't know what that really means, um, being offended all the time by anything and everything, 
uh, he argues that it's it's some sort of emergent mental illness. In other words, it's not planned. It just spreads very quickly because it sounds noble, Mark. It sounds noble. I mean, wouldn't you want a society that's free from racism, Mark? Yeah, and I, I think that's it's a thing worth pointing out. In other words, it's not just like a kind of sinister cabal. It's a mm. lot of people who are, have noble intent. Mm. In other words, they imagine a world that they think would be a better world and they think, how do we get there? And the problem is that they use bad means. Yeah. Um, so it's it's hard, it's hard to explain, uh, you know, organic structures to people. You know, they kind mm. of because especially if you grow up in a family that's ordered, there are rules, there's discipline, there's you know, your food is given to you by your father. You kind of think that's how the whole society should run, mm. should be done in a structured way. Um, you know, if you think about like how capitalism capitalism is able to solve problems. Yes, it's often not very coordinated. You know, it's it's emergent. Um, you know, sort of you have sort of percolating interest, you have people trying to solve that interest, you have competitors arising, it's all very active and alive. Um, you know, and similarly, that's what you kind of want for creative spaces, is that people feel unconstrained, you know, they're able to produce content, they're sort of feed off each other. Mm. You know, I worry that we're going to enter into this era of just utter blandness that, you know, think about when I was when I was at Varsity, you know, I, I read a lot of fiction, a lot of novels felt exciting, you know, people were aware of what was on those Booker Prize mm. lists or following the Pulitzers, you know, I feel like that almost never comes up in conversation now. Um, um, you know, I read a piece recently about, you know, the sort of top rated novels on the Pulitzer list. And it comes from this very, very small cabal of, you know, writing programs from prestigious universities that all cover the kind of woke sort of topics around diversity and inclusion. And no one reads them. Yeah. You know, no one cares. Did you know, Mark, that Winnie the Pooh was banned in China? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the the line is that you know Winnie the Pooh was being used as code for Xi Jinping because they have a resemblance, <laughs> and you know, uh, Xi Jinping has. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Chinese authorities messing with we, the book. We 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 don't we don't do any w- any ra- any Chinese racism here, Mark. I would I would never make fun of dear leader Xi Jinping. You know. <laughs> um, as it turns out, cow and chicken have uh, of well a number of the episodes have been banned in various countries particularly india can you guess why you don't make fun of holy cows <laughs> i used to love cow and chicken um and uh there was that side that side cartoon i am weasel i think it was yeah absolutely uh, loved funny, i am I weasel cow and chicken sort of it must have been in like matric or so when that came out and being mm. quite surprised by it like it felt like pretty out there stuff. Um, I think this is the interesting thing is we went through a golden age uh, on cartoons uh, at a certain point, I think in the early 2000s. Yeah. So you think about South Park and... Um, and they they, you know, you, they know all about being banned. Yeah, totally. I mean, they did, you know, Drew Muhammad, um, mm. you know... Um, no, but they, know, they actually didn't. Of, I think they, they, they did and then they didn't as well. So they, there's a there's the kind of superhero <laughs> show um, where they have uh, various deities, and Muhammad, I think, is drawn in that. And then later on, they have Muhammad as a black square. Yeah. Um, uh, they also did an episode where they where they put him inside a bear suit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, as you point out, like you know, Muhammad's a good case. So mm. you know, when the Charlie Hebdo journalists were mur- murdered yeah. for drawing, you know, drawing Muhammad, um, you know, you had world leaders. You know, standing arm in arm, saying, "You know, free yeah. speech matters. Like this is not okay." I don't know if that would happen now. Um, 
you know, I wonder if people would just say, oh, you got your just desserts, you know, you don't make fun of people, especially if it's, you know, um, you know, touching them on their religion, you know, especially, depends on the religion. Yeah. Make fun of Christians all you like, but, you know, don't make fun of Muslims. Uh, SpongeBob has been banned. Um, I'm just reading here. Uh, well, at least a few of the episodes, um, apparently just because of the language used and uh, other kind of sequences. Uh, Powerpuff Girls have been banned a few of the episodes um, in various Look, countries. That I'm in favor of. I, I don't want young girls getting these sort of empowerment ideas. You know? Yeah, they're we don't want young girls thinking effect. that they can fly. <laughs> Donald Duck and The Simpsons have also been banned. I mean, so what's interesting about this line, this this is a line that was taken with the Dr. Seuss stuff, by the way, which is to say, that's nothing new. Mm. We've always banned cartoons. You know, society's always managed to kind of work out, you know, what the new mores are. And it's okay because other things have been banned. That line bothers me big time. I yes. think every time you ban one of these things, you should, you should be concerned about it. Also because I think there's a precedent value. Um, what also worried me about it was you had this, if you watch the late night shows, uh, and their response to Dr. Zeus, almost all of them cheerleaded it. You know, they all said, this is so wonderful that publishers are waking up to these offensive images, and mm. it's so good that our children won't be exposed to this filth anymore. And then they sort of said stuff like, and here are these other children's books that you're yeah. reading. Now, the last bit is fine to my mind. In other words, if you say, hey, look, you know, Dr. Zeus is one of those books that you know kids read and they've enjoyed, and by the way, the market has responded to the banning by going up and buying as many Dr. Seuss books as possible. Yeah. You know, and those books that have been banned have soared in value because they've become very rare. Um, but there are lots of books to read, right? And that's not a problem. Let the marketplace sort of compete. If people don't want to buy this allegedly racist book with the Eskimo fish in it, they won't buy it. Um, if the publisher says they don't want to be associated with it, well, then make it copyright free, you know, let other people publish it. Um, but I do think there's something very concerning about a culture that just says, it's fine to ban these things because it doesn't just stop with those six books. Now, if you've ever read Fahrenheit 451, the famous Ray Bradbury book, and the premise is that you have these firemen whose job it is to go and burn books. Okay? And when you read the book, you think, ah, it's like a 1984 book. It's this big brother state that's sending in these guys to sort of like mm. remove knowledge. And then you realize that actually this thing is emerging from society. That what happened was people said, it's just this one word in the book that I feel a bit uncomfortable with. It's quite offensive to my group. Can't you just can't you just cut that one word out? Really, is that so much? Is that so so problematic? You'll say, you know what? I get it. It hurts you. Yeah, we'll just we'll just cut out that one word. Then it's but there's that one sentence and, and just this book, and just this author, and just this library. Yeah, you know, escalates. It escalates rapidly. You know, and so there's reasons to have these bulwarks. First, they came for the socialists. What's that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. What's that uh, line? It's uh, Martin Newwaller. He's the, he was a he was mm. a priest. Um, yeah, it's first they came for the socialists and I did nothing. You know? mm. um, you know, and then they came for the Jews and then they came for me and there was no one left. Um, so yeah, there is that worry. And I think you find this, by the way, playing out quite well in young adult fiction. So you have these these authors who um, would go and cheerlead the banning of books. They go, ah, this book is disgusting. One of the examples was. Chinese woman, okay, from China. She writes a futuristic novel um, set in like, you know, 3000 AD in a futuristic China, and there are slaves in the novel. And people said, you're not allowed to write about slavery because you're not black. Now, forgetting that, of course, slavery is one of these things that's been done to people all around the world, mm. and she's writing a futuristic novel. 
Um, and so she kind of gets like cancelled by, you know, sort of all these other young adult authors who are horrified by what she's done. And one of the people cancelling her produced the book and they got cancelled, you know. And you sort of create this perverse incentive because it's like this funny marketplace where people are just trying to like buy for attention and get their books out there. That they think the way to do that is to attack their co-authors, you know. Um, yeah, it it's a power well. struggle, Mark. That's what it actually is. It's about It's about people who... Ad- maybe some have got good intentions and others have got bad intentions that they just don't like it and they want to shut you up. Yes, I think that's right. So in other words, we we can have different intentions, some of which are genuinely mm-hmm. malicious, some of which come from a good place, but the net result is pretty similar, you know. Um, and I think what you want people to do is to err on the side of freedom. And I think there are a couple of techniques you can use on this discussion. I mean, the one I think is to try and point out to people like, I'm sure there's some book that you love that someone else thinks is despicable. And how would you feel about that book being destroyed, you know, or, or made unavailable? Mm-hmm. And people start to go, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm I'm not wise enough to know exactly what counts as offensive in all possible cases. Yeah. Maybe some of the stuff that I cherish will count, you know, and maybe I'll wind up on the wrong side of history. Yeah, I mean, my I favorite th- my favorite book of all time is um, Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this is this interesting thing, right? I, I think there are going to be certain books that are like massively popular and progressive. You know, the sort of you know people go like, "Oh, what a wonderful thing that you've done," and then at some later point in history, it, it gets denounced. Mm-hmm. And I think it's quite hard to keep track of that. So, um, Huckleberry yeah. Finn, for yeah. example, um, you know, was seen as like a real challenge to uh, to white supremacy, right? It's sort of like you've got the end of slavery in America, you've got a lot of bitter people, you've got this young white boy who's traveling with this freed slave, you know, and the idea is to sort of like show um, that Jim is like, you know, a real human being who can interact with this kid and there's a mm. relationship there. And and people are quite uncomfortable with it, you know, um, and with the language that's used in the book. Um, but now you have, and you had progressives saying like, this is an important book, this is something that should be taught in schools, this yeah. is a way of changing people's minds about racism. And then people turn against it, you know. Um, I, I was at a at a conference the other day. Um, so Kathleen Stock, who is a, a philosopher, just been ordered the Order of the British Empire, does a lot of work in the philosophy of imagination, has been doing some lobbying around self-identification on gender. And she takes the view that um, self-identification shouldn't be sufficient to determine what your sex is. So for example, if I proclaim myself a woman, it doesn't make me a woman. Um, and she thinks there's, there's real consequences to that. So, for example, I shouldn't be allowed to go to a woman's shelter just because I proclaim myself a woman. There's certain spaces she thinks should be women's only spaces. Now, I think that view would have been seen as pretty progressive um, 10 years ago. In other words, women need their own spaces. This is a sort of you know traditional feminist view. Um, you know, we need to be free from from men. It's now seen as a transphobic, hateful view. Um, and 6,000 academics signed a petition to basically uh, denouncer, you know, and said that it was a, a travesty of justice. She was awarded this Order of the British Empire. So anyway, she was at this talk, and um, the guy running the talk sort of made a comment about, she said, oh, you've done interesting work on trans on transsexuals. And she, her eyes go wide, and she says, no, we don't say transsexuals anymore. That's a forbidden term. We say transgendered. Um, and I thought that's interesting. So there's certain, you know, if you think about the evolution of these terms, you know, you had, let's say, transvestite, which is even a more banned term. Um, and transsexual was this idea of, like, you want to trans being to cross over. 
to cross over the sexes, um, you know, would have included, you know, let's say, surgical methods, hormonal methods. And now transgender sort of says, well, we don't need to actually do any physical alteration. Gender is a sort of social construct, and so it can just be done internally in your mind. Yeah. And the next move, of course, will be to say, if trans woman or woman, well, why are you saying trans at all? Just woman. And so you'll find that term transgender itself will in time become a hateful hateful slur. Um, uh, the word uh, retarded, for example, um, was was a euphemism. Yeah, a black eyed peas. Yeah, their song had to. They, remember that song, "Let's Get Retarded in Here," and then they had to change yeah. it to "Let's Get It Started in Here." I think it was. Wow! Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, so this term suddenly becomes very offensive, and itself was a PC term. It was instead of calling people morons and imbeciles, which were the, mm-hmm. the, the medical term for, for various um, IQ classes, they said, "No, let's use retarded from the French slow." You know, mm-hmm. that's kinder. You know, and the problem is. You'll never, you'll never beat the treadmill. You know, people no. can always up their fence. And one of the things that's interesting, I find, and I, I found it a complete puzzle in the beginning, was what are the things that the worker variety get the most upset about? They're not the big things. No, I never hear work people complaining about, you know, Uyghurs in China being, you know, or Iranian women. Yeah, you, you know, Iranian women having their their rights taken away from mm. them, like female genital mutilation in African countries, like. Not a peep, right? Nothing. No problems at all. So I think, why? If you care about minority groups and you care about women and you care about people being oppressed, like, why are you silent about this stuff? Why do you care about this minutia, this particular bit of language? And I realize it's because it's like being part of a religious movement. Yeah. And if you want to show how much of an adherent you are to the faith, you, you fiddle with the minutia. So it's not that there's 10,000 angels dancing ahead of this pin. It's 11,000. And you are a heretic for saying it's 10. You know, mm. And if I fight those that are closest to me, I can show how evolved I am. Um, so you wind up getting into these very petty squabbles with people that basically agree with you about almost everything, uh, you know, except this marginalia. And that's the way of showing like how morally superior you are because you know about this issue uh, and you're the one who's going to champion it instead of the stuff that actually matters, right? The term I think you were alluding to is virtue signaling. Yeah, yeah, I think that is that is a chunk of it. You know, a lot of it. I don't think a lot of the stuff is, it's done in total bad faith. In other words, the person espousing the view doesn't believe it at all, not for one iota. Mm. You know, they just they pick up that this is where the sort of social mood is at the moment. Yeah, and I need to tell everyone how wonderful and glorious I am, and and also if my signal is of a certain sort, in other words, the marginalia type, you know, I can signal to the right class. Now. On the class front, there's something really interesting going on here. So, you know, the, there's a, the play Hamilton. Mm. Okay. So, Hamilton was lauded as the most progressive play. You know, you've got this, um, you know, uh, black casts, you know, hip hop. Um, you know, it's about American history. Uh, you know, it's like the hottest ticket in town, and people would like sort of wait months to get tickets. You know, it's on Broadway, so you've only got so many seats available. You had all these like famous politicians and celebrities going to Hamilton, like totally loaded. Yeah. Okay. Hamilton then gets released by Disney as a as a movie, basically a film production of the 2016 show, and suddenly Hamilton gets starts getting denounced. People say, "Oh, this show isn't very progressive. This show is passe. This show is actually quite racist." You know, really, in four years, you guys change your minds that rapidly. Why? Maybe it's because average Joes can now watch Hamilton. And you actually, this isn't about, you know, morality at all. 
this is about not wanting to hang around with a hoi polloi. Mm. You, know, you want to be an elite. So you just distance yourselves from it. And so what you have is this sort of like rarefied elites who are talking about things that no one else really cares about at all and is completely befuddled by. You know, if I chat to my colleagues about trans issues, they don't even know what I'm talking about. You know, no. that's the way of distinguishing. Oh, you know, you're not as cultured as I am. You know, I know this. You know, what do you do in a society where you need to show that you're better than everyone else? Right. But conspicuous consumption, not well viewed anymore. You know, driving around your flash Ferrari, not so good. So, you know, like if I have a, a hybrid car, you know, that'll show, you know, I'm pretty woke because you know, I care about the environment. So I should care about some other, you know, morally fashionable things, at least for now, you know. And then I can show how much better I am than all these plebs. But I mean, continuing or trying to be ahead of the pack, to be ultra progressive, I mean, it destroys everything. I mean, I'm just thinking back now to some movies and I'm thinking of that musical, uh, I'm just a sweet transgender. It doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, isn't that a funny thing that like that, you know, Rocky Horror Picture Show gets banned in South Africa. <laughs> And it would probably get banned now just for totally different reasons, right? You know, what you have is the party government going, we don't approve of transvestites. And you have the works going, we don't approve of transvestites. And of course, there's that, like, that fantastic Ryan Long sketch with racist and work basically agreeing on everything, you know. We should segregate the races. Yes! <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's bizarro sort of, you know, bizarro world we live in. It really is. Um, okay, let's come, let's quickly come in for the last uh, for the last lap, um, Mark. Um, wrong answers only. If we were to ban cartoons, <laughs> which would they be? <laughs> ooh, ooh. Um, I, I I was thinking like there's probably a lot of those Disney movies like Frozen. Uh, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure like I don't have kids. Just let it go, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, their kids are just playing this thing on repeat. I'm sure there are many parents who'd be like, just ban it. It's just so horrible. All right, okay. All right, so all right, Frozen. Frozen Frozen will be on the banned list. What else? I, I honestly think that some of those cartoons that Disney brought out where they were trying too hard to be PC should be banned. Like there was that Frog Prince one, or not Frog Prince, the... What was that one? Um, with the little black princess. Yeah, it's, and, it's like... It's like Louisiana... Or something um, like that. And... I have no issue with the with the storyline, but they, it was like from the onset they were trying to be woke, uh, politically correct, and that 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 is the wrong premise on which to base your entire cartoon. Um, so and, and it flopped for that very reason. I think people saw right through it. Um, but I mean, let's go back a little bit. I mean, cartoons that are probably going to be on the banned list um, and not ones that I'm. That I want to see banned, but like Droopy the dog, when he his eyes would pop out at like girls in bikinis, I mean that today would be considered completely sexist, misogynistic, taboo. I never thought that when I was growing up. I thought it was great. I thought it was fantastic. Um, of course, you did you sexist pig? Yeah, but isn't that weird though? Um, that at the time they didn't think that, and now suddenly today you've got this this culture of like, well, we can't we can't show that in a cartoon. I mean, this is the sort of interesting thing that you found in the 80s with mm. on pornography. So you had social conservatives who were religious saying, you know, um, pornography should be banned um, because we should have some kind of modesty rules. And then you had radical feminists saying pornography should be banned because we don't like that it's exploiting women. And so you had this kind of allegiance uh, on this issue where they disagreed about basically everything else. Um, 
and yeah this is this is the worry um you know that just because you might not like the attitude expressed in the thing doesn't mean you should ban it you know um it's like i'm I'm actually quite in favor of people making new material you know so if i think about a, a show like girls which you know you have these different stories being told you've got a bunch of young women in their 20s living in new york like you know showing a kind of darker side to women you know i think a lot of a lot of shows would kind of have you know male protagonists um you know there's a there's another show called uh, pen 15 uh with these two girls sort of show what it was like being adolescents like that stuff's underexplored and that's great like i like it when people are doing that there's nothing there's no political agenda mm. and it. it doesn't feel like it's particularly woke it just feels like an underexplored story um there was a, a great series done um, by Kamel Nanjani, um, where there's a series of short films about immigrant Americans coming to the States. And these like unusual stories. Um, got this one about this Nigerian guy who comes to America and he gets really into cowboy culture, you know? And like, that's quite a cool thing. You know, that's like, oh, I'm like, I'm enjoying the literature. You're not punt- punting a kind of agenda. It doesn't feel like you're having to uh, recalibrate my moral framework. You're just showing me an underexplored story. And that's cool, great, no problem. You know, it's quite funny. Uh, just I'll make this as one of the sort of last comments. Um, when I was growing up, I was very anti-Disney cartoons. Um, but not for the reasons that you would think. Uh, I was always sort of team Warner Brothers. Um, and I mean, I've obviously, that stuff has fallen away now and I see the beauty in all of it. But when I was growing up, I was always sort of very anti-Disney because... Um, I mean, I was just telling my wife a couple of days ago, it was because Disney cartoons were always about beauty, beauty and um, elegance and eloquence and majesticness, right? Uh, because they had the budget and the Warner Brothers guys had no budget and they had to be creative with what little money they had. And so they would be a lot more humorous. So they went for the kill. You know, they they threw a coyote off a cliff and they made characters run into trees and all that kind of stuff you know and i like that because it was funny and because it was kind of punk rock um i i i always thought that disney was for like girls um and it's quite funny today when you see the react the, the responses to that stuff uh you know the the now you look back and you go well it was inc- it was incredibly well done but then you get people looking at little things as you've pointed out earlier things that don't matter and suddenly try and cancel the entire thing hmm. yeah 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 I, I mean I think it's interesting I mean, if, I, if I think about myself as a kid I probably had similar views to you right mm. that sort of Disney stuff maybe felt a bit prissy and mm. Warner Brothers stuff felt like quite wild I mean we probably also watched Animaniacs when we were kids and yes I just made like a new version of that and you know um, uh, my feeling is look I think moral values can change over time and and etiquettes can shift and things like that and it's okay to create new work um, and you know sometimes we visit old work and we look at it and we go I can't believe I enjoyed that and yeah maybe that makes me feel kind of uncomfortable but that's okay you know the worry is when you start to erase things you also aren't able to learn you yeah. know um, if you do think like hey that wasn't something we should have done um, well I don't like that leave it around so you can reflect on it you know I mean one of the sort of things I remind people of is a guy called Boulder he read Shakespeare and he said, "Oof, I don't think I can read this this stuff to my my wife and my children. You know, it's it's uh, too saucy for them." So he produced the bolderized version of Shakespeare, and it was also a bolderized version of the Bible, so you could cut out, you know, all the sort of mass slaughter and incest and things like that. You know, and 
people used to make fun of that instinct to think like boulderizing works is is really prissy you know and one of the things that a few people said to me about the dr seuss stuff was i said you know what don't ban it but just change it just cut out this word or change this cartoon you know my feeling is if you're going to do that Mm -hmm. you need to stick a big warning label on the front that says this is not the original work this is a censored version of the work this is boulderized Uh, if you want to get the real work it's here you know it's funny you say that yeah it's funny you say that i mean i i mean i've what published nearly seven thousand cartoons in my career and i've published a couple books and if i go and page through some of them which i really don't like doing um I'll look at some of my early work and I'll go, ooh, I don't know, man. Maybe I should just go back and change that. Uh, but no, it was, it was, I drew it at the time and that was how I thought at the time. Um, and changing it would, you know, would, would destroy its integrity. Totally. And, and I think it's, you know, there's that passage in 1984 where you have people rewriting history. Mm. Um, and that worries me. In other words... I don't want people to think that the original Dr. Zeus book was a Chinese boy, you know. Um, it was a Chinaman. What it was a Chinaman, you know, like confront what he wrote. Um, you know, I, I think when you start to remove words from books in these new versions of it, you know, I read um, Catcher in the Rye was like one of my favorite books when I was growing up. Mm. Um, and one of these books that was heavily challenged by libraries because there's a scene where Holden Caulfield is sort of at his sister's school and he's looking around and on one of the walls someone's written, fuck you. You know, and so the version of the book I had just said "f you," yeah, you know? and it's, it's it like misses the point. Like that's not what it's scrolled on the wall, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm uncomfortable with us distorting what the original authors had written. You know. Um, okay, final final remark, Mark. Uh, final remark, Mark. Sorry about that. Um, if um, if we were to say, just off the top of your head, a favorite cartoon growing up. What would it have been? It's probably going to be He-Man. Uh, He-Man. Like I absolutely love that stuff. Uh, and By I'm the still power of Grey Skull. Yeah. And I'll tell you something really exciting. So Kevin Smith, um, who did Clerks and Morats, is going to be making a new He-Man called He-Man Revelations. It'll be coming out on Netflix. Um, and oh. uh, I just watched this video of him like literally just grinning from ear to ear like an absolute fanboy listening to the music that they've done for that exactly that scene of sure. of he-man kind of like lifting his sword and saying i have the power <laughs> it's like, things, right? like they take you to the space of joy right um you know and i think they're not just for kids i read a ton of graphic novels like can we just you know, also point out mark that um that he-man sets very uh impossible standards for men Yes, yes. And I just felt like it's a little boy growing up. I saw the big muscles and it made me feel desperately inadequate, you know. Um, I needed to walk around in furry underwear, Mark. <laughs> My poor cat, you know, I looked at Battle Cat and thought, I'll never be like that. I'm always going to be a cringer. <laughs> no, we should have just banned He-Man. Cause it's we should have just banned He-Man. All this, yeah, all this toxic impact on people's aspirations. Toxic masculinity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then just quickly, just to counter yours, my one of my favorite cartoons growing up was The Pink Panther. Um, it was, for me, it was just genius. It was the seven-minute cartoon with no words. Um, it was heavy psychedelic stuff. It was, it was completely experimental and abstract. 
it's one of my favorite cartoons actually of all time it was so so well done and it was done on a ridiculously shoestring budget yeah those really were fantastic i remember watching mm. the films one thing i would say to viewers who i don't mean sorry i don't mean peter sellers hey i mean the yeah, cartoons yeah, Yes, they had, the cartoons were in the movies as well. Yes. Um, they would often start the movies with a cartoon, and I think it had its own separate thing as well. Correct. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they made animated versions of some of those Dr. Zeus books. Um, and the one that's really worth watching is very touching. It's called The Sneetches, which you can find. Yes, I've seen it. Um, and, I mean, this is, a, this is sort of an interesting take on it. You know, if you think about Zeus as this really progressive figure, you know, it's about these, these creatures you have you know, some have stars on their on their chest and some don't. And the ones with stars look down very snootily on the others and think mm. of them as being lesser beings. And, you know, this book, again, if you care about context, was written in the 60s, civil rights era. And, you know, the whole thing is really a kind of thing about non-racialism and about not judging each other by the you know our appearances, but rather by the content of our characters. Um, and it strikes me as so strange that a figure who was so important at inculcating those positive values in children is now you know tossed asunder yeah i mean everything is back to front um okay mark thank you so much uh as always it's a great pleasure chatting to you uh this podcast will be up um everywhere tomorrow spotify apple um etc etc i will stay in touch with you um is there anything you'd like to end off with i'm trying i wanted to say is there a website but you don't have one yeah, so uh, if people are interested in some of the stuff that I do, I run my own YouTube channel called Brain and a Bat. Uh, we're a philosophy discussion show. I'll link um, to that. So, yeah, uh, and we talk about all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And some of it has been on censorship and free speech, but uh, many other things too. Cool, Mark. It's a great pleasure. Enjoy the last bit of your evening. If you enjoyed this podcast, Please visit supportgerm.com.